Hello, and welcome to Tales from Imperial Russia, with Dr. James White. Episode 2. Riot in the Altai. The Tale of Chet and Chagul. The April of 1904 brought more than spring to the peaks and troughs of the Altai mountain range. Known as the Siberian Switzerland, the region, located south of Tomsk, is famed for its magnificently rugged landscape, a cauldron of soaring stone, crystalline blue lakes and verdant greenery. Amidst this spectacular scenery walked an itinerant shepherd answering to the name of Chet Chalpanov. Accompanying him was his 12-year-old adopted daughter, Chigul. As they tended to the barring flock, a vision came unto them. An old man, riding a gleaming white horse, and clothed in a resplendent white robe, proclaimed himself to be Akbohan, a messenger of the legendary Altai hero, Oriot Khan. The Khan was soon to return to the Altai. In preparation for his coming, the pair were given a series of instructions. Elements of the old Shabinism were to be rejected. Blood sacrifices were to be abolished, and the black shamans, those who communed with the spirits of the underworld, were to be ignored. Russian money and goods were to be rejected. If all the Altai prayed for the Khan, then he would return, expel the Russians, and establish a new kingdom in which all Altaians would be rich and happy. Together, Chet and Chugul began to preach their new faith in the nomadic settlements of their compatriots. They met with rapid success. By the beginning of June, some 3,000 nomads had gathered around Chet's humble yurt in the Terrying Valley in order to worship. Alas, Chet and Chugul had chosen the worst possible time to begin their new religion, dubbed Bohanism in Russian after the sacred messenger and Akyang, the white faith, in the Turco-Mongolic Altaian tongue. In February 1904, the Russians had begun an ill-fated war with Japan. Even if the Russian peasants knew nothing of Japan, they knew that Russia was fighting an enemy from the east. The sudden appearance of thousands of natives, gripped by a new religious fervour with noticeable anti-Russian strains, can only have frightened them. So it was when the first police officials went into the valley to investigate. Some of them returned with stories of the Altaians now worshipping a deity called Oliot Yapon, the latter word being very close to the Russian for Japan, Yaponia. Rumours spread rapidly. Some spoke of huge armies being seen in the mountains and that the Altaians were about to rise in the name of the Japanese. Russian peasants began to flee to the cities. They knew all too well that the nomads were becoming increasingly agitated about the seizure of their land, more and more restricting their movement. Something had to be done. St. Petersburg was already demanding information. Vyacheslav Plieva, the Minister of the Interior, telegrammed the governor of Tomsk to ask whether decisive measures were needed. Although the governor replied that the affair was purely religious in nature, he still had to disperse the meeting. On the 18th of June, an instruction from the governor landed on the desk of the police captain for the town of Buisk. 
he was ordered to disperse the prayer meeting in Tereng Valley. The captain and the local Orthodox bishop, Makali Pavlov, headed out to the village of Ustkan to gather a force of peasants. Around a thousand men had assembled by the 20th of June, among them adherents to the old shamanism from the native population. Many were armed with clubs and guns. Bishop Makali gave them his blessing, to quote a participant in the rally. The words of the bishop were permeated with love for these children of nature, who themselves did not know what they were doing. They were following in the footsteps of their leaders, who acted on the instigation of the Prince of Darkness, the Devil. The bishop prayed that the assembled men would not use any force against the childlike sons of the Altai. The Kalmyks, that is the Altaians, he prayed, should be pitied like little brothers who had fallen into a wicked fog. Blessing the assembled men, the bishop instructed them to have Christian virtues in their hearts, humbleness, patience, love and mildness. The Russian bishop's words were filled with colonial condescension. Children of nature, childlike sons, little brothers. After the blessing, the mob moved out to the valley. Deploying like an army, one group cut off the way of retreat, while the rest surrounded the praying Altaians. The police captain demanded the surrender of Chet. In the words of an attendant Orthodox missionary, the Kalmyks said not a word. They stood like voiceless statues and seemed like living walls, defending the great Chet and the holy place where the yurt stood. The Kalmyks stood unperturbed. They looked on the encirclement indifferently, reacting to the instructions of the police captain coldly. They seemed like a people completely independent of the authorities, inviolable members of their new independent society, which was ruled by their own rights, laws and order. As the Altaians refused to surrender Chet, force was used. Police battered their way into the yurt to arrest the new prophet and his closest adherents. At this point, a shot rang out and fistfights started. According to a report, one Altaian was killed and around 50 wounded. On the Russian side, the only heavily wounded individual was someone shot in the hand. As only the Russians had firearms, this was presumably a wound inflicted by his own side. Chets was arrested and removed to Buisk. One Dr. Basov, an unwilling participant in the events, removed Chigul from harm's way when the crowd began to jeer at her. Ultimately, order was restored and the Altaians were treated to a missionary lecture. Now they had lost both their old faith and their new prophet, they were told. They had no choice other than to turn to Orthodox Christianity and the Empire's beloved Tsar. As missionaries, journalists and ethnographers rushed to give their version of events, Chet and his closest collaborators were put on trial in the Tomsk District Court in May 1906. They were accused of claiming supernatural powers in order to excite the natives and with having imprisoned several people who had refused to join the new faith. Curious onlookers packed the courtroom. The public of the provincial city was eager to get a taste of the fine oratory of a liberal defence team from St. Petersburg, themselves outraged at yet another example of autocratic overreach. The dramatic trial 
certainly did not disappoint. The defence and prosecution constantly wrangled over the matter of translators. One witness collapsed from what the defence described as a life-threatening illness. The court called in a star expert, Dimitri Clements, a leading ethnographer from the Imperial Geographical Society, testified that the new movement was of a purely religious character and not an attempt to revive the long-lost Altaian-Mongolian state known as the Zhingarian Federation, firmly and murderously quashed by the Qing Chinese in the 18th century. The prosecution then proudly produced key evidence, a book in Mongolian script that had been found in Chet's yurt, foreign propaganda. Clements, no doubt suppressing some laughter, told the court that the maligned book was, in fact, a manual on how to grow potatoes. On the 2nd of June 1906, the court cleared Chalpanov and his co-defendants of all crimes. Having spent nearly two years in prison, Chet returned to his nomadic life. When one of his lawyers met him again in 1913, he found that Chet had almost completely forgotten about his role in the events of 1904. The only mark they had left on him was premature ageing. Chagul, apparently living with her fourth husband, said that she no longer thought of Chet as her father. Chet and Chagul's story ends here. They came from obscurity and returned to it just as easily. But what were the causes behind the disturbance? The Altai was not known as a hotbed of resistance, a fact the government had reason to be glad of. The excellent furs that had drawn the Russians to the region in the 17th century had led to the discovery of the mountain's vast mineral wealth. By 1800, the area was, quite literally, a gold mine for the empire, with one 19th century pamphleteer dubbing it the future California of Russia. Initial Russian settlement in the Altai was limited to the north, where settlers mostly dwelt within the security of wooden fortress towns like Wysk and Barnaul, founded in 1709 and 1739 respectively. Unlike other areas of Siberia, the fur tax imposed on natives in the 17th and 18th centuries seems to have been collected without much contact. The Altaians left these immensely valuable goods at designated spots for later pickup. Equally, the Russian Orthodox Church lacked both the infrastructure and the intent to forcibly convert the shamanistic natives. A diocese was only founded in Tomsk in 1832, with the result that scarcely 500 Altaians converted throughout the entire 18th century. Even when missionaries finally came to the Altai in 1830, they did so in the relatively benign form of the monk and later saint, Makari Glukhayov, whose approach was characterised by the rejection of force and the promotion of agriculture, modern medicine and preaching in the native language. For Makari, Christian baptism was worthless unless individuals accepted Christ of their own free will. In the region's north, this cautious approach garnered no little success, converting some 55% of the natives by 1914. Among them were Altaian priests, creating something of an indigenous Orthodox tradition. So, although Russian fur hunters and miners had not necessarily been gentle, the 50,000 or so Altaians were mostly left alone to live their traditional nomadic lives, gathering the fruits of the forest, 
herding their sheep, hunting and engaging in their famed ironsmithing. Repeated government injunctions forbade Russians from settling native land and there was little pressure to adopt sedentary agriculture. If it was adopted, it was usually at the behest of Saint Macari and his successors, who created special villages for their convert flock. Far more transformative was the encounter of the southern Altaians with Qing Dynasty China. As part of the Jungarian Federation, a warlike assemblage of Western Mongolic peoples established in 1634, they had repeatedly clashed with the Chinese Empire. The Qing, seeking to secure their northwestern border once and for all, launched a genocidal assault in 1755, killing around 80% of the population, perhaps as many as 500,000 people. Around 15,000 Altaians fled into the territories of the Russian Empire, seeking its protection from the onslaught. The changes that came to the Altai in the last decades of the 19th century had their origins not in the locality, but some 3,500 kilometres to the west, in the Russian core lands. The peasant population was exploding. European Russia's population grew by as many as 32 million people in the four decades between 1851 and 1891. Nonetheless, the amount of productive land, never in great supply, remained the same, leading to what was known as land hunger. With more mouths to feed, but no more land to farm, many families faced impoverishment unless they obtained some kind of relief. Characteristically of the imperial government, it sought to kill two birds with one very poorly aimed stone. Why not offer these Russians cheap passage to and land in Siberia? In this way, demographic pressure on the core could be relieved, and the government could settle the sparsely populated but increasingly strategic wilderness. What is more, the advent of the train made travel into the depths of Siberia, once a highly dangerous proposition requiring months of travel over virtually non-existent, bandit-ridden roads, a safe, easy, quick and even comfortable process. Between the 1860s and 1912, some two million Russians clambered aboard the steam-belching iron monsters to head off for frontier lives in the wild east. Around 62% went to the Altai. Previously a distant inconvenience at most, Russians were now pouring into the lands of the nomads, parceling it up into farmland and claiming ownership over the forests. In 1899, the government in Petersburg threw more dry sticks into the ever-expanding tinderbox, when, in an effort to create more surplus land, it demanded the natives abandon nomadism and adopt sedentary farming. This was not so resented in the north, where agriculture had already made some strides, but it was hated in the south, whose desperation was only increased by the fact they could no longer flee to new lands. Treaties between Russia and China in 1864 had solidified the once porous border, blocking a potential safety valve. Here then is some explanation, not only for the explosion set off by Chet and Chagul, but also for the anti-Russian sentiments of their new religion. It was widely known that Bahanism demanded that its adherents reject the material trappings of Russian existence, like tea drinking and Russian-made goods. Chet and some of his later followers 
also advised their believers to isolate themselves from Russians altogether, for instance, abjuring from eating or drinking with them. One local official, after an inspection tour of the Altai, told the governor of Tomsk that the Bahanists were preaching, and I quote, Soon there will be a time when there are no Russians. A heavenly fire will exterminate them together with those Kalmyks who do not pray to Bahan. There will be no white Tsar, and Yapon Oliot will rule in the Altai, where there should be only Kalmyks. A Bahanist prayer song, collected by Orthodox missionaries in 1910, rhythmically declaimed, From six bows we will fire, there will be no Russian folk. From ten bows we will fire, the Russian folk will not stand. Much to the chagrin of the Orthodox Church and the local authorities, Chet's acquittal during his 1906 trial had the result of granting his new faith a degree of both legitimacy and legality. For the church, Bahanism posed a threat to its convert flock in the north and competition for the years yet unwon souls of the south. Hence, they threw at the new faith every kind of epithet that they could imagine in an effort to obtain government intervention. Chet was dubbed a psychotic, a simpering tool of the Japanese, the Mongolians and the Chinese, seeking to create a fifth column in the empire. Some detected the cunning hand of the Buddha. Here was an attempt of the deceitful Mongolian Buddhists to wean the Orthodox from the true path. Others still thought Bahainism was a political form of Altaya nationalism, hoping to separate the region from the empire. All of these accusations, mostly devoid of truth, say more about the Russian Empire as it entered the final decade of its existence than Bahainism. Humiliated by defeat for Japanese, beset by separatist movements throughout its imperial possessions, Russia's government and culture had lost much of its confident swagger, and so reacted to even minor challenges with no small degree of hysteria. If blame for the violence in Terang Valley is to be apportioned, then the larger share must fall on the government authorities, whose careless colonialism had created ferment in Altaian society. Even the Orthodox Church, defensive of its converts and its chances of future missionary triumphs, had repeatedly warned that depriving the natives of land was a recipe for disaster. This was compounded by the governor's decision to use a rabble of nervous settlers to disperse Chet's followers, a decision in which the bishop and his missionaries were complicit. The Russian colonists were no doubt aware that their new lands had only recently been the grazing and hunting grounds of the nomads, who thus had good reason to be aggrieved. But the authorities were not entirely mistaken or disingenuous when they claimed to espy nationalism in Bahanism. Mostly made up of quickly abandoned ritual and behavioural admonitions don't smoke, don't drink, don't worship the world of the dead. The new religion largely lacked any substantive content. Chet, its supposed prophet, was found in 1913 smoking cigarettes and declaring he had no problems with the once reviled black shamans. The worship of Oriot Khan, a conglomerate of historical figures and heroic deities, was not a move to monotheism or a rejection of the other myriad spirits of the Altaian pantheon. The Buddhist and Christian influences seen by missionaries and anthropologists 
were skin deep at best, entirely non-existent at worst. But what did stick were the songs and chants created in Bohanism's wake, evoking a common homeland for all Altaians and a romanticised vision of a long-lost Jungarian federation. The ballads implored their listeners to worship the Altai's majestic mountains, delight in its glorious rivers, and hear the fables of their heroic ancestors. After the 1917 revolution, this was seized upon by local intelligentsia to forge a new identity for the recently created Oriot Autonomous Republic of the Soviet Union. However, the lies of the old regime also stuck long in the minds of many. When Stalin and his lieutenants looked on Bahainism, they not only saw a contemptible religion, but also a weapon in the hands of the Japanese. And so they did what the imperial authorities would never have dreamt of doing. They decisively and brutally wiped out all of Bahainism's adherents. Fortunately, modern times have been kinder to Bahainism. Post-Soviet Altai intellectuals, obsessively charting the waters of neo-paganism in an age they decry as spiritually bankrupt, have joyfully jumped on the religion's near-forgotten legacy. Beating shamans' drums, affixing coloured ribbons to sacred trees, and splattering milk over mountainsides, they entertain themselves with passionate squabbling about whose recreation of the near-dead faith is closest to the lost reality. But this, dear friends, is a tale for another time. Mm-hmm.